A Thoughtful Faith podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. We are your hosts. I'm Mark Rigo. And I'm Gina Colvin. Our purpose at A Thoughtful Faith is to provide support for Mormons who want to stay engaged with their religion, yet are struggling to find conversations that support their faith transitions. While we seek to honor the beauty of the LDS faith, we also understand that discipleship doesn't necessarily mean uniformity and agreement. Hence, we make room here for all of those who are constructing or reconstructing a thoughtful faith journey. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go toward keeping the podcasts alive and building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to a Thoughtful Faith podcast. My name is Gina Colvin. Any Mormon who's recently popped their head out of their ward or stake to take in the latest LDS issues will have come across the name Kate Kelly. 33-year-old Kate was recently excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for behaviour not in keeping with the law and order of the Church. Her very public efforts to advocate for women's ordination was the charge. A lawyer by profession, Kate is no stranger to community organisation and advocacy. Beginning at an early age, in her hometown Hood River, Oregon, the young Kate began an indoor soccer league because there wasn't one that provided for girls. As a student at BYU in 2006, she participated in an action for academic freedom in the wake of a BYU administrator's dismissal, where she and her co-demonstrators duct-taped their mouths closed in protest. In her professional life, her specialisation is international human rights. Some might mistake Kelly as a rabble rouser and a feminist agitator, a far cry from the stolid and domesticated Mormon woman of myth and legend. A campaigner she may be, but the other part of the story is that Kate's pre-excommunication Mormon resume literally sparkles. She grew up in the church, served a mission to Spain, attended BYU, married in the temple, and has continuously served in the church. Yet on the 23rd of June this year, Kelly found herself stripped of her church membership for her open activism to highlight gender inequality, an action she has always maintained is utterly in keeping with her faith. Kelly would claim that she's every bit a Mormon, and everything she's done is because of her belief in the central tenets of Mormonism, that is, continuous revelation and an open canon. Her supporters have variously hailed her champion, and her detractors have poured down scorn. Wherever our opinion falls on this matter, Kelly is a bit of an enigma. She's both staunchly conformist, yet at the same time brazenly opinionated. To unravel some of this mystery, Kate Kelly joins me now. Kate Kelly, welcome to a Thoughtful Faith podcast. Hi there, thanks for having me. Kate, I'm wondering if we could begin by talking about your early life, where you grew up, your parents, and perhaps some formative experiences that started you thinking about women's rights. I grew up in a pretty normal Mormon family. My parents are both converts to the church. My dad joined the church when they were already married. They were in university. He took the discussions from the Mormon missionaries. And in the second discussion, they asked him if he wanted to be baptized. And he said yes. And he said the missionary almost fell off his chair. <laughs> so 
My parents raised us as members of the church. I was baptized when I was eight years old, was very integrated into the Mormon community, went to mutual and girls camp and all of that. And But I lived in Oregon, so there weren't very many other Mormons. And I always felt like being Mormon was something really special about me. It was like the first thing I would tell people and I would meet them, be like, you know, my name is Kate and I'm Mormon and that's what this means. And I would wear BYU paraphernalia like all the time. <laughs> it makes you really Mormon. <laughs> and so, yeah, I would, I had like BYU school supplies and like a BYU pencil box and BYU ruler and like BYU backpack. And I was just like other kids in the school called me BYU girl. <laughs> I was very, very, very proud of my Mormonism, even when I was a very little girl. And I, it's funny because I had a very traditional upbringing, but at the same time, not, you know, my parents were converts and my dad grew up Lutheran and really wasn't indoctrinated into patriarchal culture. And so even though he served in leadership positions in the church, he was in a bishopric and a, you know, a stake high council and he was a branch president. He wasn't in the bishopric. He was the bishop. My parents shared everything equally. They shared parenting roles equally. You know, I remember my mom was an early morning seminary teacher And so my dad would have to get us ready for school and he learned how to braid our hair and he got us ready and made us lunches and they just shared everything equally. And my mom was an attorney and so she worked outside the home and I don't know, I just, I was raised thinking there was nothing that girls couldn't do that boys could do. And so your mother talked to you about the ordination of women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she always told me that women would be ordained And, you know, she said she learned that in the temple and I didn't know what the temple was or, you know, what happened in the temple as a child, but I just knew that women would be ordained someday. The thing is, she never really said when (laughs) and she never really articulated like a concrete plan for that. She just, that was her belief. Do you think that she was wrestling with the inequality in the church as you were growing up? Mm Definitely. Definitely. How did that manifest itself? I think, like I said, she's a working woman. She is an attorney. She's a peer in her professional life. And then when she goes to church on Sunday, she's not. She's just the bishop's wife. And so I think she probably confronted a lot of sexism that way. But again, that didn't really manifest itself in my home life because that's not how my dad is. And that's not, I didn't. I didn't have any examples in in my family of that. So it wasn't really until I went to BYU where I confronted like a serious culture clash. And I also grew up in a place where we were like a very rough scrabble ward. (laughs) We weren't really in the business of excluding people. It was just take everyone as you can. We don't really care if you're different or if you're, you know, it, it was just like a very close knit group in a very, you know, who are very outnumbered in the community that we lived in. And so there wasn't really any excluding people. Do you recall your parents having these conversations about patriarchy? Was this a dinner time conversation? No, mm -mm. no, I don't. I feel like it was just a lot of it was just very intuitive. And I learned from their examples. But it's not like we sat down and we're like, okay, this is what a patriarchy is. And this is why it's wrong. It was just that I learned from example, 
you know, and from them encouraging me and saying, okay, this is you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I said when I was four years old that I wanted to be a judge. And they're like, okay, you can do it. You know, you can do whatever you want to do. And, you know, my dad would always encourage me and he got me a like an internship. He was a newspaper publisher and I worked at a very young age, started writing articles at the newspaper. And all he, he always really focused on the library. Like he's had a very he was really passionate about libraries and always took us every week to the library and would read out loud to us. And I just never, it's not like it was an explicit topic of conversation, but I just learned from their example, the ways that men and women can operate with total parity. So that was your domestic life. Was there a disconnect between your domestic life and the egalitarianism that existed there and what was happening in the youth program? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have asked me about my experience in young women. And again, I just didn't, a lot of things I thought were strange, you know, like we just had a, for some reason, we did like pedicures all the time. <laughs> I felt like, like every week we were doing pedicures. I was like, okay, that seems a little excessive. And we did like weird activities where we we would do a, you know, a photo of us and then do an overlay of the temple over us and like put it up in our room and say that we were like saving ourselves for marriage and all these kinds of things. And I thought those things were a little strange, but again, it was, it was very, I can't really describe it any other way. It was just like very rough and like rough scrapple, rough hewn. Like you just, you focused on the core principles. You didn't exclude anyone because we were so small that we didn't have the luxury of being particularly judgmental. (laughs) And you accepted any kind of leadership just because you needed everybody. Yeah. Like we needed everyone. My mom was the seminary teacher for, as a teenager, that was the primary ecclesiastical authority and like doctrinal teacher in my life. And so that, and that was my mom. So I didn't really see the stark contrast between the ways that, I mean, obviously there's institutional things like boys are ordained and girls aren't at the age of 12, but I didn't feel the sting very acutely until I went to Utah. Okay. So let's talk about going to Utah. You left school and went immediately to BYU. Mm -hmm. And another thing is I didn't have very many Mormon friends. Like I didn't, have girls my age I played soccer and I did all these other things with people who aren't Mormon and so none of my friends were Mormon none of my peers were Mormon I didn't I wasn't really in that way I wasn't exposed to the deep cultural inequalities so when I went to BYU you know I was very excited I I was the BYU girl (laughs) and so I was excited to go to BYU because I grew up in a place where there are very few Mormon kids and it, you know, BYU is like the Mecca of Mormon kids. You go from being like a sort of an outsider in a lot of ways and to being an anomaly. And then you, you just go to, you're swimming in a sea of like happy Mormon kids. (laughs) And I was, you know, I was super happy at BYU. I loved it. I had some great experiences. I did study abroad in London and I did a semester at BYU Hawaii and I, you know, I did all these wonderful things and had some really great experiences. But at the same time, I started having to confront the ways that men and women are treated differently in the church in, a, in an entirely different way as an adult and without the surrounding of my parents. So I wasn't able to separate out those things so much. And I guess I just didn't really have the cushion that I had had growing up 
And I, one very crystallizing experience for me was I took a class at BYU called Teachings of the Living Prophets. And it was taught by Lloyd K. Newell, who's the music and the spoken word voice. He's got a very deep voice. And he, he assigned us a topic. And the topic was, do anything, any issue that you want, you research it and see what the modern prophets have to say and you write a paper about it. So I chose working outside the home <laughs> for women because that's what I wanted to do. And that's what my mom did. And I, I think I was really struggling because I was like, hey, that's what my mom did. And we had a perfectly happy, successful family. And I'm hearing all these negative messages about it. So I want to find out what the truth is. So I did this paper and read all these talks and all these different things from, from different prophets. And I just remember it was like 3 a.m. because the paper was due the next day. And I was just sitting on some shabby couch in some slumlord apartment in Provo. And I just started weeping, like just sobbing. And I turned to my friend who was also in the class, also writing her paper the night before. And I said, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Because it was just this clash of like, you can do anything you want. You can be a lawyer. You can be a judge. You can do anything. The world is yours. Clashing with, no, you can't do anything you want. You can only be a mother. Nothing else Anything else is strictly forbidden and God will be angry at you if you do anything else and your children will like, I don't know, wither away and die from sadness. (laughs) (laughs) That was basically the gist of my paper. I just, it was devastating. So your awakening, your, I suppose your feminist awakening pivoted around this idea of woman being domesticated as opposed to working, right? Mm -hmm. Which again, wasn't a problem. For my family. <laughs> and so I just couldn't understand. They were saying it was so evil and wrong when I'm like, it's not evil and wrong. It's fine. Like we turned out fine. We had a happy life. <laughs> and did you hand in that paper? I did. Mm-hmm. And? At, but the paper was about what the prophets had said. So I just wrote what they had said. And you handed it in in tears. Yeah. I mean, essentially I was just like, I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't just be a stay-at-home mom. And I never wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Like, I, I didn't like babysitting. I never, you know how some young Mormon girls, like, you know, when they're 10 years old, they start, like, checking out books in the library about how to be a babysitter. I hated babysitting. <laughs> and I just, I just, like, did not like interacting with small children. I didn't, you know, I just didn't, that wasn't part of my calling. I understand it is for some people, but it wasn't for me. It never was for me. And you wouldn't repent of that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, it's not for everyone. Um, and, and that's something I think Mormon women don't get the opportunity to explore. And, and that's really what I came crashing down in that moment is like, that's not an option. Like I thought, okay, it's an option to be a mom. You know, that's great. Some people do it. Some people don't. Or some people stay at home. Some people don't. But I realized it's not an option. It's choose wickedness <laughs> or choose sorrow in my case. Yeah, that was very difficult. Did you have a sounding board at this point? Who were you talking to about this? Um, I was talking to just other girls, you know, other girls at BYU, my friends. I think that's one of the great things about BYU is that there are so many Mormon kids that you're going to find a handful of ones who are just like you, at least. 
And out of 35,000, I found a very core great group of friends and we worked these things out together. So you didn't call home and say, guess what I just found out at BYU, mum? <laughs> no, no. And that's the funny thing is that my parents are extremely orthodox in every other way. And so I didn't want, I really didn't want to bring this to them and I didn't want to be like, oh, turns out it's not quite as rosy as I thought it was. So I didn't. I kind of, in some ways, I put it on a shelf. I talked to my other friends at BYU. I, you know, we had a discussion group at BYU where we would meet every week and we called it discussion night and we would have people present and then we would just like hash out issues together. It was very, very, it was like an excellent time, extremely rich environment. We had people, there was a BYU group who came to BYU as part of a, a traveling demonstration against schools that didn't accept LGBTQIA students. And we had them come and present. And we had all sorts of different topics and people come and we would like hash them out and talk about them until the middle of the night. So it, for me, it was a very rich environment and where I met some of the best people I've ever met in my life. Some of the brightest, some of the most creative, passionate people I've ever met, I met at BYU. And that's, you mentioned in the intro that we did our, we planned a protest at BYU, and that was an academic freedom protest. And that was, that's after my mission, that's after I got back. And we started realizing like, okay, we've thought about all these ideas, we, we've hashed them all out, we need to start doing something about it. You know, we need to speak out. So that was my really my first experience confronting an institution and dealing with the hierarchy and administration of Brigham Young was a real learning experience for me. What year are we talking about? I was there like many people for a long time. <laughs> I started in 1999 and I graduated in 2006. And you had a mission in between that time? So, yeah, I served my mission, which actually took up two full academic years. So Okay, so what years are we talking about? I went on a mission um, from 2002 to 2004. So you punctuate your time at BYU where you've got this developing consciousness about inequality, etc., and you go on a mission and you go from yes. orthodox to orthodox. <laughs> so tell us about that. What led you to, even, what led you to go more on orthodox. a Yes, what led you to go on a mission? Again, I always felt like I would go on a mission. In some ways, because my parents are converts to the church, my, my dad, for example, never served a mission, and he always wanted us all to go on missions. My dad is the kind of person who carries a Book of Mormon in his car at all times, and he'll like give it to the gas station attendant. Or he'll carry, this is, a, this is an actual story, he carries a Book of Mormon with him, he's an avid skier. He carries a Book of Mormon with him on the ski lift and he'll give it to the person he's riding up the ski lift with. <laughs> what, what does he expect they'll do with it? <laughs> do, I don't know. Read it. T tuck um, it into their, their boots? Yeah. I, I'm telling you, this is like a person without guile, a person who is so caught by the proselyting spirit. I've never seen anyone else like that in my life. And so he always just like, it was like his number one dream for us to go on missions. It, the only problem is when I was growing up, missions were kind of for like the homely girls who couldn't get married. <laughs> and so it was like, there was, I remember there was one girl in my ward growing up who went on three missions, like not an older couple missionary like she just went on three missions people talked about it as though it was a negative not a positive like oh yeah she's going on another mission she just can't get married 
Okay, at this point we have to say, we have to punctuate this. For all of those women who are going on missions between 2000 and 2004, we're not saying that you were homely and that's why you went on a mission. No, that's what we say. no I'm saying that it was, it was portrayed to me in that way. And so I was confused. I'm like, you know, girls just weren't encouraged is what I'm saying in the same way. It's like, well, if you don't get married and if you can't find out anything else to do, and, you know, I guess you can go on a mission. So that's kind of what the experience growing up in my ward was. But then, of course, my dad was very zealously in support of us going on missions. So I, I did. And you went to Spain? I went to Spain. And Spain was like the best possible place to go. I got to learn Spanish. I got to be in an amazing country with amazing history. It was wonderful. Spanish people are wonderful. They have a hilarious sense of humor. Very sarcastic, just fantastic. I had a wonderful time. And I loved my mission. I know some people won't believe this. I guess my companions will. But I was very, very like ruthlessly obedient. Because I'm I'm on my mission, there's a real emphasis on following the rules. More than just regular Mormon obedience rhetoric. Like very, very, very heightened rhetoric about obedience. If you break one rule, the spirit will leave and like no one will join the church and it will be all your fault for generations to come. I remember my poor companion that I trained. I trained a girl, you know, a new, fresh new missionary. And we had a schedule and I was so strict that I would, this is going to make me sound really bad. (laughs) I was so strict that if she, we had to be out of the house. I can't remember the time. I think it was eight. We had to be out of the house by eight or nine and I would not let her finish brushing her teeth. Like if she wasn't ready, I would make her brush her teeth in the hallway because I was like, we have to be out of the door at eight. And if you're not ready, we have to do it. There's no other option. So I was very, 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 very obedient. So you were known for this orthodoxy? I don't even think that was abnormal. I feel like that's just what everyone did. Okay, maybe I was a little, little. Over the top? (laughs) Over the top. But I was very obedient and very, very, very dedicated. And I loved the experience. I loved it. I, I just can't emphasize enough how wonderful it was. But at the same time, a very outspoken, assertive person in general. I was then as I am now. And I, in some ways, like really clashed with the idea that these 19-year-old boys, and I was 22, and I was capable, they were in charge of me, even though... I was just as capable, if not more so. And, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in missions and people are obsessed with numbers and reporting. And I felt like there was a lot of shenanigans about baptizing people who weren't really ready just to report them as a baptism and other things. So I would speak up. I would say, this isn't right. We shouldn't do this. And I would always get shut down by these 19-year-old boys. And so I started, I, I just, I can't not be assertive. And so even though I was extremely obedient, I was like, I can't not speak up. So I would speak up, I would speak up, and I would have a lot of contention with these leaders, quote unquote. Recently, someone pointed out to me that one of the zone leaders from my mission said, I just want everyone to know that I remember Kate Kelly, and this doesn't surprise me at all. She She had quite a problem with male leadership even back then. And I just think that's so hilarious because it really, it just was so strange to me that I could do everything that the elder missionaries, quote unquote, elder missionaries could do, but I could teach people, I could find people, I could do the work, all the different work that they could do. But when it came to interviewing or baptizing or being in a leadership position, you know, some of these 
some of these 19-year-old boys were in branch presidencies in some of these areas, dealing with very, very serious issues. And I, I just found that appalling. <laughs> Did you raise this with your mission president? or? Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like a joke in the mission that I was, like, I remember one time I was in a small, and that's the thing in Spain, there just aren't very many Melchizedek priesthood holders. And so you don't have a, a small branch. I was in a small branch and one of the branch president had just also gotten back from his mission very recently. He was only a few older years older than us because there just wasn't anyone else to do it. You know, there weren't any male adult men. So he called me in and he said, you know, Sister Kelly, I want you to know that we're calling you to be in the branch presidency. And I was like, wait, what? So confused. And then the elders like burst into the room and they all started laughing. And it was like this whole practical joke that the elders and this branch president, because he's pretty close to their age, had planned. Did you get the joke? I mean, I thought it was funny because we play jokes on each other and I was like, oh, ha ha ha. But then I was, wait, why should it be a joke that I'm a leader? <laughs> you know, like, why is that a joke? I don't, it, it shouldn't be a joke that women can serve in leadership capacity. So I was very obedient, but I was just coming up again and again and again with there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to do the, the things that these men are doing. And I feel very called. I feel very chosen to be on this mission. Like I feel very spiritually connected to all the people I'm teaching. And it's funny, you know, since, since I've started ordaining women, a lot of my companions have contacted me, some positively and some negatively. And one of them emailed me and she said, you know, I remember you talking about women in the priesthood on our mission, but I just don't remember. I just didn't know how serious you were. <laughs> so you were having those discussions at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And converts ask us about that all the time, especially female converts. Oh, well, is it only men? that are in charge because they're just new to Mormonism. In the context of Spain, though, the predominant religion would be Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the ordination of men only wouldn't be a surprise. Right. But if you're joining a new religion because you don't believe in Catholicism, <laughs> ah. that is a question you would probably have. Right. So, I, And a lot of people in Spain are very culturally Catholic. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic, but I don't believe anything that they say. <laughs> <laughs> or like, I've only been to church twice in my life. Or I'm Catholic, but that doesn't have much spiritual re relevancy to my life. I mean, that's not everyone. Obviously, there are devoted Catholics who very uh, honestly and zealously live their religion. But a lot of people, especially young people, that wasn't the case. In 2004, then, you finish your mission and you've got these two strands that keep clashing up against each other, which is this orthodoxy and this obedience and this deep passion for the church. On the other hand, you've got this awakening, this you're dealing with ongoing issues with equality in the church. And those things make interesting bedfellows, don't they? And in 2004, you go back to BYU to finish your degree. And at that point, my parents had already moved to Provo. Did you meet your husband, Neil Ransom, at BYU? Yes, I did. Right. You're a cliche. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Classic. Did you explain to him at that time your political leanings? Well, I mean, that's what attracted me to him. He was part of these discussion groups that I was talking about. The, the discussion night, he was uh, one of those people in that group that helped plan the free speech protest at BYU. He was himself very much an activist and an intuitive feminist. So that's 
what attracted us to each other. Oh, well, you're lucky to have found somebody like that at BYU. I'm so lucky, but also it's just like a game of numbers at BYU. Like out of 35,000, you're going to have some really, a handful of really strong male feminists. And I, you know, that's again why I loved it. I was, that's the only place where there's going to be that many Mormon male feminists who are real feminists and not just, you know, progressives or whatnot. And he's a real intuitive feminist. He wasn't raised by feminists and he wasn't raised in any sort of progressive family. He was raised by farmers in Idaho. Not in Idaho, but they, they're from Idaho. It was wonderful. So 2006, you emerge, you're married, you took up your first position. Oh, you went to law school, didn't you? Yeah. I, I worked for a couple of years. We lived in Salt Lake and tried to figure out, as with every couple, you got to figure out how you're both going to do what you want to do as a true feminist. Oh, and this is, okay, I'm just going to tell this anecdote because I think it says so much about him. You know, when I got married, we didn't, I didn't take his surname. And everyone was like, how did you come to that conclusion? And, you know, we literally never even had a conversation about it. it. It was so obvious that we didn't even discuss it. It just made intuitive sense. Looking back, we, we never even had a discussion about it. It just happened. I didn't take his name and that's that. Just made sense. And so we were really on the same page about a lot of things. And furthering his feminist status, he decided to support me through law school. We moved to San Diego, which is where I did my first year of law school. I decided I it wasn't the environment that I was really hoping for. So I transferred schools to Washington, D.C. I went to American University and he moved again, found it. He found a new job. I did an internship in New York. He found a job there. He just really put me through my entire education. Which isn't unlike the kind of environment that you had growing up. Nope. Very similar. Right. But your domestic sphere is making sense. Making sense. <laughs> and it's just like a collaboration. I support him in the same ways that he supports me. And we just always, that's, that, that made sense. And that's what made us happy. So I got married. I went to law school. I, again, you know, I just, it's so weird to be in a, a, like a rigorous academic environment, but also be a Mormon woman. Is this at American University? Yeah, because you're, you know, you're going to law school, but then you have a gathering of Mormon lawyers and it's all men. <laughs> All men and Kate. Right. It, it, that, that is, that's literally how it was. When I was at the University of San Diego, we had like an orientation barbecue and there were, I don't know, 20, 30 law students who came, the big group, and all of the other law students were men, except for me. And we went around the room introducing each other, you know, introducing ourselves to the group. And when it came to our turn, they looked to my husband to introduce me. Even though the students were doing the introducing, he wasn't a student. They wanted him to introduce me. So they knew that you were the student, but they wanted him to introduce you. Right. Yep. Um, and then all of the students would take turns and they would say, oh, and my wife is over there, but not say her name or what she did. And so it was just, it's so bizarre to be in like the 1850s and 2012 at the same time. And so I kept experiencing those things. You know, I was part of the J. Rubin Clark Society, which is like the Mormon law society and it's extremely conservative and very patriarchal. And actually, the, the heads of that society, it's actually a calling. So the people who are in charge of that professional group of attorneys are only men. That, it's a calling. Who calls them? It's a calling from the church. They have regional representatives who are attorneys in each area, regional areas. And so... 
so let me get this straight. Okay, my mind is whirling now. So the J. Reuben Clark Society is a professional association of Mormon lawyers instituted by the church. It's run, it's run out of BYU, which is obviously a church-funded institution. They do have a women in the law section. I will give them I will give them credit for that. They do have a women in the law section, but the women in the law section is very heavily focused on quote unquote work life balance and work life balance and and I'm not begrudging anyone for wanting to talk about that. I'm not criticizing them. I'm just stating a fact that that's what it's focused on, but I never saw any session for work life balance for men. So the women's auxiliary or the women's section is very focused on work-life balance and like how to have a robust family life and also be a lawyer and how to work part-time and how to like be flexible and you know all these different ways of how to balance them both and and that literally never happened for men they they never had to have a section about how to have a family and and work (laughs) so it was very that I kept coming against coming up against those things throughout my entire legal education so you graduate from American University in Washington, D.C.? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you take your first position? Yep. Um, so I focused on international human rights law uh, in law school. That was my whole goal from the very beginning. I went to a school very focused on international human rights law, did things like do projects at the United Nations Committee Against Torture. I did a clerkship at the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in San Jose, Costa Rica. So I was very focused on international human rights law. And my first position out of law school, well, my first position was actually a place called the Women's Refugee Commission, where I worked on issues affecting migrants and refugees, women, obviously, since it's called the Women's Refugee Commission. And then my second position, that was a a fellowship. And then my second position was a year-long fellowship at an organization called the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice, Justice and Human Rights, particularly focusing in their strategic litigation unit. And what we did was file cases on behalf of people in regional human rights bodies, so those are essentially smaller regional United Nations. You know, it's a it's an international organization, and they they do many things, but they also adjudic- adjudicate cases against countries. So it would be you know women of Zimbabwe arise against Zimbabwe. So the case is actually filed against the country. And at this time, Neil is at school. Yeah, Neil started um, when we were in DC. He started his PhD program, and he's getting a PhD in environmental science and policy. So you've obviously found uh, a niche in your law practice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in which you have some outlet for supporting women. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, you're negotiating this alongside a church that you have seen as being problematic in terms of its treatment of women. During this time, what sense are you making of it? Well, during this time, the election passed. So Mitt Romney ran for president, and there was a lot of hullabaloo about Mormons everywhere <laughs> in, the, in the universe. And I felt like from the coverage I saw, there was very little about the fundamental inequality men and women face, you know, the fundamental inequality between men and women in the church. So I just really didn't hear anything about the priesthood, particularly not from Mormon women, period, during that time. And there were just like the most ridiculous stories. Like I heard an NPR story about like Mormon culinary traditions and jello salad. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we're, we've got airtime to talk about that. But nobody is talking about fundamental inequality. 
And I feel like that is relevant to a person who wants to be in charge of a country where 50% of the population is women. But was Obama speaking about women? Yeah, I mean, that was like his shtick, right? I mean, one of his things was like reproductive rights and, um, you know, uh, Sandra Fluck was one of the people who campaigned for him. And I think he talked a lot about women. Not that I voted for Obama, but I, I felt like, I, fe- I felt like Mitt Romney should have been taken to task a lot more than he was for his, like, he should have had to say why only men can be leaders in his religious institution. Who did you vote for? Um, <laughs> oh, good. Glad we're finally getting into that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can take this out if you want. <laughs> um, I, I try to maintain political neutrality because I feel like uh, the Ordained Women movement encompasses Republicans and Democrats and people in all countries. And politics and Mormonism can get really weird really quickly. But I voted for Jill Stein, who is a woman and is part of the Green Party. She's green. That's right. Right. So that is probably very revealing about how I feel. But for one, she's a woman. For another, she had excellent environmental New Deal policies. She is a very educated She's a physician from Massachusetts, so I voted for her. Okay, at which point lots of American Republicans are now switching off <laughs> their right, devices. precisely, which is why I don't talk about it very often. Um, well, that's okay, Kate. Yeah. You're in good company. I vote Greens as well. Well, so it probably we means can... more in your country. <laughs> well, it does. Um, it does. And... I'm, I'm just like a person of conscience across the board. Um I'm not, uh, I'm not very strategic. That's something that people really accuse me of, you know, doing everything out of strategy. And like, I'm just like, obviously a manipulative devil who's, you know, calculated every move for the rest of my life. And it's just so far from the truth. It's so funny. I think my idealism trumps strategy in every situation in my life. (laughs) Right. You just say it. Yeah. And that's how I, that's how I feel about politics too. I'm like, she's the most qualified person. She would be groundbreaking and she, she's not going to win, but that's not why I'm voting. I'm voting because I think she's the best person for the job. And I don't think anyways, I could get a go into like a hundred hours about the two party system in the United States, but I won't. We won't. We won't. But in many respects, you've inherited some of that guilelessness that your father has. Like, this is just the way I feel about it, and I'm just going to speak about it. Right. It's just like, I am going to tell the truth. It's not going to benefit me, but I'm going to tell the truth. (laughs) Because I feel much better after it. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, that's something that Mormonism has really given me. Like, a very, very passionate commitment to the truth. Well, that's an interesting subject in itself, really, isn't it? Because Mormonism hasn't necessarily stood up against history for being completely transparent and truthful, yet at the same time, one of our core values is honesty. So we kind of are caught in that, that you know, funny little tension between those two ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's, I again, it's like, it's very hard for some people to, like, keep the baby when they throw out the bathwater. And and some people probably would say there is only bathwater. But for me, there's like so much value in Mormonism. Again, it's like I met the most wonderful, passionate, committed people. I met my husband who's, you know, in my estimation, a very 
wonderful person. I, my family is an amazing family. Like we learn so much. We're like, I think Mormonism, especially early Mormonism is just full of like wild, passionate people doing like crazy big ideas everywhere. And that's just something I love. And that's something that I learned from being a Mormon. You are in Washington, D.C., and following the election, we get some action in terms of the development of ordained women. Can we just have a talk briefly about how that came to be and your role in that? Yeah, so essentially because of the work I was doing, you know, I just felt like a hypocrite. I felt like I'm doing all this work in all these different countries and helping people stand up for themselves, but I don't stand up for myself and tell the truth in my most intimate community. You know, I know women in Zimbabwe and Western Sahara and Cuba that are getting very real death threats for telling the truth and standing up for themselves. And they have to go into hiding and they're routinely beaten and arrested and extradited from their countries. And they have to flee. Like there's real consequences for these people who are being so courageous and And I don't face any of those consequences. I face very high social costs, but I'm not doing anything. I'm not, I'm not telling the truth. I'm not saying what I really think and feel. And so that came to a head in January of 2013. And I just said, that's enough. Somebody has to do something about this. And from what I can see, no one else is doing something about this. And so I am somebody. I'm going to do something. Did you not think, I mean, you're seeing women life-threatening circumstances. Did you not think, well, we Mormon women don't actually suffer in the same way as these other women? Like, let's nope. just I don't think that at all. Here. I think that oppression, just because oppression manifests, manifests itself in different ways, doesn't mean that it's any less important to confront. And I think it, the exact opposite. I think not, you know, my type of brain doesn't say, oh, well, we have nothing to complain about. My type of brain says it's so, the onus is on us so much more to speak out because we don't have we don't face the t- types of threats that they do. So January two thousand and thirteen, this is your moment. You're saying mm-hmm. enough. So <laughs> I I wasn't very di- I, I was hardly at all dialed into the online Mormon community, and I think in some ways that was a real asset. <laughs> I didn't have any online enemies, and so I just literally started calling people, cold calling people, the old school, old fashioned. I called John DeLynn and I said, like, I want to do a direct action in support of female ordination. And I want a group explicitly dedicated to advocating for the ordination of women. Who can you like connect me to? Because yeah, no, he said, you know, Lori Winder Stromberg has been writing about this for years. There's Nadine Hansen. There's, you know, he, he knows everyone in the Mormon community. And so and, and then I would call them and then they would say, okay, have you reached out to so-and-so? Um, and what about Hannah Wheelwright? She wrote, Hannah happened to mention it in a Daily Herald article during the election. So someone said, well, Hannah mentioned it in this article. You should contact her. So I did. So really, it just went like that. Me contacting people, them telling me other people to contact. And then we got together a group. I don't, I don't, I need to review the notes because we all took notes, but got together a group of 15 people, let's say had a conference call. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm very flexible on what we do as a group, but I want to do direct in-person action. Nothing like, I don't want this to be an online campaign. If you know, we can have an online component, but I want this to be something we do in person. 
that was my my main drive. <laughs> and when you proposed this to your group of 15 people, what was the response? Um, well, those people were willing to have a, a conference call with me, <laughs> like a, a random lunatic they'd never heard of before who called them up and said, let's do a direct action on the ordination of women. So it was a self-selecting group, <laughs> but people were super scared, super, including myself. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying these other idiots who were scared. I'm saying we were scared. And, and so we just went forward. I'm like, we're going to do this. Like, even if it's going to be a handful of people, like we're going to do it. And so, you know, we bounce around ideas and eventually we came to the idea of doing the priesthood session action. And I said, well, I, you know, I predicted at the time, I was like, the church is going to try to make us outsiders. We need to take control of our narrative, you know, affirmatively and assertively and we need to say who we are up front so that people know. And that's why we did the website. So that that was the idea from the very beginning was to say, you know what, we are Mormon people. I have a calling. I was married in the temple. I served a mission. But I think women should be ordained. I want people to know this is coming. Okay, so now I have a couple of questions. When you called your parents and said, guess what? What was their response? My mom was like, yes this is awesome. Let's do this. You know, the first thing she said, actually, is she, she, and again, I can't emphasize how orthodox they are. She's like, well, is anyone, is anyone going to say anything bad about the church? Is this, you know, is anyone going to be able to do a diatribe against the church? I don't want to say anything bad about the church. And I said, mom, come on. No, I'm not going to do that. And so, and then she said, okay, let's do it. Yeah. My parents were really on board from the very beginning, especially since I, I assured them that it was going to be respectful. So the next question is, in a lot of critics' minds, any changes to the church happen through an order, the priesthood order. So at this point, how are you making sense of or what are you thinking about the priesthood order? I think, I mean, I just, I think the main, I don't know if this is a direct answer to your question, so feel free to ask again. But I think the main contention and like the most fundamental contention I have with people is the way that revelation works. And so for me, I'm like, this is the way revelation works. Like, look in the scriptures, look, look at the early church. You know, Emma Smith went to Joseph Smith and she said, I hate this tobacco thing. Can you ask God about it? And he did. And it changed. You know, we got the word of wisdom. So the way I see Revelation is very much like a participatory, we're all evolving as a, as a body of the church. And by that, I mean, we're all in this together, every single one of us. And, and other people see it as like a top down, like it, it's a Paul on the road to Damascus. And like Thomas S. Monson will be struck down with something he's never thought about before. And like, it will appear from nowhere. And I just don't see it like that. Like, I don't, I, I see this as an evolution. I see this, the priesthood as an expansion. You know, none of the people in current leadership of the church would have had the priesthood in Christ's day, period. They're, they weren't Jews. So it's it's an expansion. It's an evolution. It's a conversation. It's, it's, it's all of us trying to become a Zion people together. And I don't think what I'm doing threatens that process. I think what we're doing is is part of that process. So... I, 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 just, I just see things so fundamentally differently. So why uh, direct action? Why not just speak through the bishop and then the state president or petition uh, general authorities? Well, well, 
for first of all, that's happened before. So they had there's a thing called All Are Alike Unto God, which is a great document that says that they prayerfully, you know, they want the brethren to pray about ordination. But in the interim, here's a list, a hundred things that, that the church leaders can do. That document was signed by hundreds of people and sent to all auxiliaries of the church, all leaders, every single person in the church leadership, and no one responded. So that's that that happened <laughs> without result. And I signed that document, but nothing happened. And I'm very committed to direct action for a lot of reasons. But one of them is it's not just about affecting change. It's about a transformative process for the person. So I don't think as much as, you know, it's, it, I, I, I find a lot of value in online conversations and, and community building, but there's just something about it. I mean, you were there in the April action. There's something about it, just you and the person confronting them and saying, I want in and them having to tell you, no, you can't, you're a woman. There's something very, very empowering about that process. And there's something very real about showing up that doesn't exist online or in any other way. So it's just a really transformative experience. And I wanted that for myself and I wanted that for other women. As a side note, you, you, my bishop and my stake president can't change fundamental gender inequality in the church. They can't ordain me they can't let me perform a baptism. They can't let me perform a baby blessing. They have no power or authority over that whatsoever. So I see it as a futile exercise to seek refuge from a person who can't provide it. If I said, do you feel that the, the brethren or the hierarchy are a bit limited, how would you respond? Uh, I think our potential is limitless. I think that's the beauty of Mormonism. I think that they didn't have to respond in the way that they did. I don't think we have to continue responding the way that, you know, I don't think they have to continue responding the way that they are. I think this can be an open dialogue. I think we can all, I still think that we can all be in this together. And and that's, you know, we have an open canon. <laughs> like one day in 1978, no black man on the planet could have the priesthood. The next day they could. And everything changed. At this point, you were talking. Were you talking to other women who had fought for ordination in their and their respective churches, non-Mormon women? Yes, we did. We right away we started contacting, particularly the Catholic Women's Ordination Conference. Um, they have a very long and robust movement. They they've done all kinds of really interesting actions. You know they. They print out fake money that says ordain women, and they, when the little plate gets passed around in their services, they put that in instead of money. They, they do. They did pink smoke. They when the Vatican, when the papal conclave was deciding who the new pope would be, they released pink smoke when the smoke went up to protest the exclusion of women in the Catholic Church. I mean, they're really brave, creative, amazing women. Have they been excommunicated? The excommunications from what I understand, have been reserved for people who do rogue ordinations. Oh, so they haven't, or, they haven't ordained anybody yet. So they, they have uh, like a, a separate branch that's called the Catholic Roman Catholic Women Priests, and they do ordain women. And they have their own congregations. The priests who ordain them are, are Catholic priests. They're typically targeted for excommunication. And the women who are ordained and who run the congregations are also excommunicated. And so when you approached them, they were helpful? Very helpful. We had an, 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 on August 26th of 2013, we had an interfaith fast. So it was, it was Catholic, Mormon, Jewish, 
Muslim, Lutheran, Evangelical, and Buddhist women. And we had an event in Washington, D.C. that was very well attended. We had an event in Salt Lake City, and we all did a fast together and talked about how to bring forth equality in all of our different faith traditions. And it's just, it's just amazing because you, it's so easy for us, for example, for Muslim women, it's so easy for us to think, oh, they're so oppressed. You know, then you hear from a wonderful Muslim feminist talking about like the feminist tradition in Islam and, you know, Muhammad's wives and like all of this interesting history that I've never heard about before. And I think it's, it's not that they're oppressed and we're not, we're all in this together. And there's a lot of work to be made in every major, major faith tradition to include women. Leading up to the October action, you were all afraid. Mm -hmm. So how are you feeling in anticipation of the October action and asking for profiles or inviting people to submit profiles? Well, at that point, I was feeling really good because it several months had we started, we launched the website in March and it was October and and nothing had happened. So I'm thinking, oh, this is this is going well. (laughs) And I think, honestly, maybe I was literally the only person that thought we would get in, but I thought we would get in. Really? I, I honestly thought until that, like, usher stepped in front of me, I thought we would get in. And I thought at the bare minimum, because we were trying to get into the tabernacle. And the overflow. Which is, which is just a, on a screen. Like, it's not actually even in their presence. So I thought, you know, for sure, they would just let us watch it on the screen. Because it was being live broadcast. And so... I thought for sure they would let us watch it on the screen. And, 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 and I, I also thought maybe they'll just let us in. Like, how hard would it be? You know, I think it's, it's hard for a lot of people to get there in their minds. But at this point, I was like, it, 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 they don't even have to make any policy change for just to let us be there and watch it live. I mean, I could, I could hold my iPhone on the sidewalk outside and watch it. Like, what would it cost them to just let us in? If they had let you in, what would what would you think you had gained? Well, first of all, I think it would be a major step forward for women to understand that they could be included. We we don't have to be excluded from this. We can participate. We can ask questions. We can say, hey, why aren't we allowed to go in? Oh, we got in. That means we can ask questions. That means we can all decide what's best for women together with women's input. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be like, like the the powerful you know leaders from on high have allowed you to have portraits in the conference center you should be grateful it's it's women being part of the process making the changes that need to happen and in many respects if they had let you in perhaps some of the flames of ordained woman may have just been extinguished oh absolutely absolutely because well first of all we wouldn't have At the October action, it was very, very heavily documented by the media. And every single woman that got turned away with tears in her eyes was videotaped and photographed. And, you know, it was just it was just a very like visual, visceral experience. And if they would have let us in, we would have been inside watching the, the broadcast. So in many respects, not letting you in really accelerated a, the interest, and B, the feeling. I think so, because again, it was this tiny moment of you just literally knocking on the door and being turned away. And it embodied so much for the women. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of the women who attended that first action, and they said, you know, I felt this my whole life, you know, every week that I go to church, but it, it never was so apparent. It was never so real. It was never so visceral that I just felt. I'm not equal. 
So let's try and speculate a little bit about what was going on. Why could they not have said, yeah, sure, come in, we've got room? I have no idea. I honestly don't know. That's the conundrum, really, isn't it? Because in in terms of a a PR disaster, this was it. And in terms of inflaming the the feeling behind an organisation, that was exactly the right thing to do. If they wanted ordained women to grow, then this was the thing to do, not let them in. Well, and I think too, more than, I mean, I just, I just hate public relations in general. It just feels creepy to me. I'm like, why just tell the truth? Like you don't have to have someone spin anything. Just tell the truth. And so for me, it it wasn't like that they spun it wrong. It was that it revealed the truth, which is women can't be part of the, it's not a participatory process. And they don't want to hear from women and they want to continue excluding women. So I think on a fundamental level, it really just exposed we weren't where we thought we were. And that's the same thing with my excommunication. I think aside from the personal anguish that I've experienced, it also just was so painful to me because it revealed I was wrong. I was too optimistic. I was too hopeful. I thought we were in a place that we aren't. Following the October action, you, as a board, you've got an ordained woman board, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You had to have some conversations. So that's taking place. But what's happening in your normal workaday church life <laughs> back in your ward? Honestly, well, obviously after October, I got a lot more attention. So more people knew about it. But I just kept being the Relief Society chorister. <laughs> Like nobody really, you know, people like the Relief Society president said, you know, I'm just really thinking about you and, you know, we love you. And I I wouldn't, I didn't, I never used church time as a platform to speak about ordained women because that, I hate it when other people do that. (laughs) And I didn't want people to use church time as a platform to talk about Glenn Beck or whatever other things that people felt was relevant. I just wanted to talk about the gospel, talk about the things we had in common and like use it as a worshipful experience. So if it was extremely germane to the lesson, or if someone explicitly asked me about it, I would talk to them, but I didn't use it as a platform. I just kept going to church. I mean, I had my visiting teachers. I had the person I visit taught. I mean, the person that I visit taught, you know, people would be like, so what are you up to? And I'd be like, well, actually, you know, I'd say I'm starting a movement within the Mormon church to advocate for the ordination of women. And she was very shocked, but not negative. Most people in my ward were pretty cool. My bishop, I really like the guy. I mean, he's he's a lawyer for Exxon, and I you know, I remember I, it's a very like it's a very affluent area. It's like where all the rich conservative Mormons live is in Virginia, uh, in the D.C. area. And I don't know if it was last Christmas or two Christmases ago. No, it was it was when I was still in school. The bishop called and said, okay, well, we did this whole drive for like money and for grocery cards and all these things for people in the ward for Christmas, but we have all this extra. Do you guys want it? Basically, we were like the poorest people in the ward. (laughs) And I was like, you know, there's got to be like a widow or someone who needs this more than we do. So we didn't take it, but it was so nice of him, you know, just to think of us. And, you know, I emailed him several times and my stake president too saying like, you know, this is what happened. This is what I'm doing. If you want to talk to me, please let me know. You know, I want you to have a firsthand source, not hear from other people. I never heard from him. My stake president, 
who previous to this, I had no interaction with, you know, I, I, I didn't meet him or I didn't have a state calling or anything like that. He emailed me and said he wanted to meet with me. So I met with him in December of 2013. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I met with him um, and he invited the bishop to come, but like the meeting was going to happen either way. And the bishop did come, but he didn't really say anything. And he, to me, my perception was he was very uncomfortable. Like he just wanted, I, I mean, as you can tell from this podcast, I'm a real chatterbox. <laughs> and he just kept saying like, okay, well, that's about, that's good. So, and then I would just be like, uh, what about this? Blah, 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 blah. So, so he was uncomfortable with what you were saying or com uncomfortable with being in that it, conversation? I mean, you'd have to ask him, but from my perspective, my perception was just the meeting happening, period. Like he didn't want to be there. Not that he dis not that he agreed with me. Don't get me wrong. He definitely does not agree with me, as we have now seen. But it just didn't seem like it was his idea to be there. So, what was the meeting with the stake president about? So, I actually blogged about this on FMH, and essentially, he just one of the things they were concerned with is that I said that I had been my leaders supported me. And they were very concerned to make clear that that did not mean that they supported the cause, which I thought was fair. Had you said that the leaders had, your leaders had supported you? Yes, but that's what I meant. Like they supported me as a daughter of God and as a member of their congregation, not the cause. So I, you know, I agreed to say explicitly that they don't support the cause and they've just been supportive of me and my ward has been great, but not that they support the cause because I thought that was fair. You know, I shouldn't even indirectly impute to them opinions that they don't have. And and the meeting was, I don't know, again, maybe I'm just delusional, but the meeting was, we, we said, I don't know, I didn't count, but there's at least seven times we said the phrase, we'll just have to agree to disagree. <laughs> so it was like, you know, they don't believe that women should be ordained, and I do. And I was like, all right, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree, and then we move on. And he even said, we'll have to agree to disagree several times. So from my perception, the meeting was like, okay, they don't agree, but we've had this meeting. And he explicitly said that this is, of course, the stake president, not the bishop. The bishop isn't saying much of anything. The stake president said, you're not being disciplined. This is, this is not about formal discipline. Were there any warnings? I mean, I just don't know what warnings are. Like they met with me, but again, I'm like an open book. I'm like, yes, let's meet. Let's talk about this. You know, my stake president in the meeting said that I was literally, not figuratively, literally the only woman in the stake who had problems with gender inequality in the church. And I was, that is not consistent with my experience. <laughs> and I, I suggested at the meeting, this is, I mean, this is showing like my state of mind at the meeting. I was like, okay, let's have a conference on gender like women in the church and gender inequality or, you know, whatever we want to call it. And we'll see who shows up. <laughs> and I was like, if okay. it's just me, you'll know it's just me. And if it's not just me, you'll know it's wider, you know, like, and I bet, I bet they jumped at the chance. They, did, they said, we will not be doing that. But I, I'm like, let's just like have a conference, you know? And then even after that meeting, I suggested it to one of the counselors in the bishopric who works for the church full time. I was like, hey, we should have this at the D.C. Temple uh, Visitor Center because there's like a big visitor center where dignitaries come and they have lots of programming. So I was like, can you reach out to the people who run the visitor center at the temple and say we want to have an open forum about women's roles in the church? 
And I, like I said this without guile, I was like, this would be great for the church. Like the church could get ahead of this issue and we could really dive into it and like have all kinds of perspectives. Like it would be wonderful. Can you please ask them? And (laughs) again, no, no, did not yield any fruit, but I was like, let's talk about this. You know, let's, let's not just pretend it's our fault for having the questions. Let's let's talk about it. Let's see who else is worried about this. Were you surprised that they weren't picking up or taking uh, the lead on, on any of your ideas? I'm just, I don't know. I was I was surprised that they thought that I was the only one. I mean, I I, I was like, you could you could maybe you don't have exposure to like people who are involved in feminism. Maybe like a thousand other things, but like you had the internet. You, you have to know that. This is not like a lone wolf cause. So I was I was shocked that they and one of the things he used as an example to prove that I was the only one is that no one wore pants to church on wear pants to church Sunday. So I was like, you know about wear pants to church Sunday, but like you don't compute that to like your jurisdiction. It was very confusing. In your mind, are you thinking these are men of the world? In many respects, you know, they've got responsible positions. Um, you know, they are attorneys. Successful. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're successful. Do you think they had sort of spliced their life? Well, this is the way it works in my normal life and my professional life, and women are equal. And this is the way it works in the church. What sort of mental calisthenics are they doing to suggest that the way that works in the church is right? Are they saying that? Equality outside of the church is okay, but not inside the church. I hate to be an armchair psychologist. I wish you could do a podcast with them next. But <laughs> shall I, ask again, them, shall again, I? Again, demonstrating my total naivete, I asked my bishop to be interviewed for a documentary about ordinary women. He declined. So I was like, they should get your perspective. The, I don't know. I just, I think, I think that it's not just Mormon men that do those mental gymnastics. It's all Mormons. You know, it the I'm it's not that we're unequal, we just have separate roles rhetoric, but the rhetoric is very fine finely tuned and like it's all it's a lot about like elevating women, it's like putting them on this pedestal and like women are wonderful and we, all women are mothers. You know, that was another contention where we had to agree to disagree was that all women are mothers because I'm not a mother. I, I have no children. And he said, Well, you're still a mother and I'm like, That's absurd. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm not like that's that's not true and also not doctrine but I think that is so finely tuned within Mormonism that it's there's isn't a lot of co- people don't have to face the cognitive dissonance and then we circle about round to your first point that you made earlier on is that your feminist awakening awakening occurred around this idea of motherhood mm-hmm. so you're revisiting it now right with actually motherhood as priesthood. It's your form of priesthood. But I don't, I don't, I'm not a mother. (laughs) You know, the all women are mothers thing is just totally mind boggling. Well, I wonder how you manage to think about that. Like, I'm not a mother, but I am a mother. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I said, okay, if I'm a mother, I'm the mother of ordained women. I'm just imagining these men really scratching their heads, Kate. Yeah. And just being like, why did we draw the short straw to have her in our jurisdiction? (laughs) (laughs) 
You sound like you were relentless and also guileless and a little bit naive. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just like an optimist, you know? I don't know. Some people would call that naive. That's fine. That, that's fine. But for me, I'm just like, I'm optimistic. Like, why can't things change, you know? I mean, it, the same thing happened for the October action. I said, we're going to have 250 people. And almost everyone else was like, you're insane. Like, we'll be lucky if we get 50 people. Like, this is totally new for Mormon women. Like, you need to dampen your expectations. And I'm just like, no, I know it. You know, I know we're going to get. And we did. And the same thing happened in April. I, I said to the Salt Lake Tribune, we anticipate 500 people. And everyone was like, why did you do that? Now, now it's going to, you know, now it's going to look like we lowered our expectations and it's never going to be that many people. And we did. We had 510 people. So I feel like I'm just, I, I'm just like a delusional optimist. And I guess there's like, I don't know what the difference is between visionary and delusional optimism, but <laughs> it's, it, I feel like that's in some ways how I approached my meeting with them. And I really think the big key in my two total meetings that I had with my leaders about this is that I treated them as peers and saw them as peers and they did not see me as the same as inferior. And you got that sense that they saw you as an inferior. Definitely. Definitely. All the way from setting up the meeting, you know, they say, uh, no, not even they, the, the stake president's secretary sends me an email saying he wants to meet with you. Like, can you meet this day? And I'm like, what is the meeting about? <laughs> you know, and he's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I don't agree to meetings that I don't know what they're about. So you're going to have to tell me what it's about. And then we have like a 20 email chain going back and forth about, and I say, well, I want to know the agenda of the meeting. And, and, and they just really are just like mind, like floored that I would insist on knowing the agenda before a meeting. You want to know the agenda. Because I'm a professional person. Like would an attorney in any other setting agree to a meeting? They don't know what it's about and they don't know what the agenda is and they don't know why they're going. Why would, why would he agree to that? Why would I agree to that? It makes no sense. It's not even a productive use of time. So I was applying like professional ethics and standards to another setting and they just didn't apply it the same way. No, because you're a Mormon. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, I said, I want to know what the meeting is about. We agreed on an agenda. Nothing in the agenda that we agreed on had anything to do with discipline. And then the first thing he said was, uh, I'm putting you on informal probation. Okay, so when was this? So you've had this meeting in t December 2013. When were you on informal probation? So that was in December. And I also told them in that meeting that I was moving and when I was moving to Kenya. And they looked a little relieved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it, was, it wasn't like a physical fist pump in the air, but it, was, it, it seemed like they were relieved. And I didn't hear from them again until... I requested tickets for the priesthood session. Again, I was like, I want to give them the chance to do the right thing. Like, I'm going to request tickets. So I requested tickets. They denied that request. And I got an email from the stake president the weekend, my last weekend in church, very beginning of May. So I actually ended up meeting with him on May 5th. Uh, and I said, you know, literally, I'm, this is my, that was my last Sunday in church. Like, I'm packing up all my belongings. I'm selling, I don't even have any furniture. Like, I'm leaving. Like I told you in December, I'm leaving. And he said, 
And so I basically said, I can't meet with you. I'm, I'm leaving. And he, that's when he said, I'm putting a move restriction on your records. You can't meet anywhere. You can't have other leaders. I won't let you move your records. Um, and you have to meet with me. So this must have been a surprise. So you've had this meeting in December 2013. You're told at that point, look, there's, we're just having a discussion. And we are not, this is not a discipline of any kind. And then we fast forward to May the 5th and suddenly you have a move restriction and you're informed then that you are on informal probation. Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was this a surprise? Yes. Now that's why I went to the meeting. Cause I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like you have five months when you know exactly when I'm moving and the day before I move, you want to meet with me and put me on probation when I will literally never see you again. Like, makes no sense. So I went to the meeting and again, I went into the meeting not knowing what it was about because he didn't disclose that it was about informal probation, even though we agreed on the agenda. Um, so hold on. So the agenda that you agreed on didn't include anything about no, what, what was on, what was on the agenda? There were three things. One was he was very perturbed that I had went to the BYU Barlow center, which is like a satellite campus of BYU in Washington, DC. And I had presented to a group of girls there about ordinary women. He saw an Instagram photo of me on my Instagram account that I was there. And that's how he knew that. So like the level of surveillance is very minute at this point. Um, that's the first thing, the Barlow Center pre- presentation. Talking about the Barlow Center, talking about the, the action, which had happened in April, and the six discussions. Oh, the online presence. Right. That we put on, we put out six discussions. At this point, they hadn't even been put out. So he hadn't actually seen any content. We had just discussed and announced that we were going to be doing it. So yeah, he wanted to talk about the six discussions. So I said, yeah, I want to, you know, I'm more than willing to talk about all three of those things. So you go into this May meeting, you've got three things on the agenda, you agree to those things, and then... I go into the meeting, the bishop isn't there, it's a, one of his counselors, the stake president's counselors, and he says, I'm putting you on informal probation. Before you discussed any of these three right. things. yep. And I was like, well, that was not on the agenda we agreed on. <laughs> but, yeah, it was very, I mean, I was a little suspicious because he was so desperate to meet with me. He also said, I will meet with you any time, day or night. That's a direct quote. So it was very, like, urgent. For, from my perception, for no reason... Like, why would this be urgent? I told you about this in December and you've known that exactly when I was leaving for that whole time. Like, why? (laughs) At this point, we can now speculate why the change of heart. Why not just let you go in December? Make it somebody else's problem. Or talk to me sooner. (laughs) Okay. So Um, suddenly it becomes an issue. Yeah. Like, it's it's an urgent, like, I will meet with you at 3 a.m. anytime. I will meet with you day or night. You have to meet with you. And I was like, okay, this is absurd. But again, I'd been open the whole time. I'd been saying, if you have questions, you should ask me personally. So I was very, like, I was committed to participating. I just was gone. Like, I was already leaving. So now you have a, have a move restriction. And right. move restrictions are confirmed or approved by the Office of the First Presidency. Isn't that right? That's what it says in... The church handbook, I'm not, I have no way of knowing if that actually happens. So you have a meeting this year Mm -hmm. with your state president present who informs you that you have been put on informal probation. And this was obviously a huge blindside for you. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I was just like, why have we not had conversations leading up to this? That would make me think this was going to happen. 
Um, in the interests of natural justice, under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be the case, would it? Uh, right. If you were trying somebody, they would be apprised of all of the conditions and the circumstances leading up to this. But there is a gaping hole for right. you when we move from December to May. Right. At that point, they asked you to follow particular guidelines to have yourself reinstated. And what were they? Take down the website, ordainwomen.org, disassociate myself from the group that I had founded, Ordain Women. And I'm, I'm not, I don't have the letter right in front of me, but one of them was to correct the public record on my standing in the church. So you were to tell them now that you were on informal probation. That's right. what they required you to do publicly. Mm-hmm. When you received all this information at once, what was your reaction? I was just, I don't remember everything that I said, but the main thing that I said was, you're making a mistake. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I said, I, and I said, you know, I, I looked him in the eye and I said, I've, I've spoken with total candor at every turn I am looking you in the eye right now, and I'm telling you I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. And I went through, I said, you know, I'm not going to take down the website. I'm not going to disassociate myself from the group. So I, I don't know where that leaves us, but I just, I just want to be truthful. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Did you ask him why the change of heart, how he got to that point over a five-month period? I mean, the meeting... I don't know if you've ever been in a disciplinary meeting before, but it's not really about you asking questions. <laughs> it's it's not about hearing what you have to say. It's not about it's not a dialogue. It it's very much like this is what we have decided. To, he was literally reading from a script. Like it it was written down. He he was reading what he had decided to say. So there was no like element of extemporaneous thought. Or, you know, well, what do you have to say about this? So there was um, no conversation. He hadn't invited you for a conversation. No, 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 no. Definitely just not. For an, just for an announcement. Yeah. I mean, again, he was, he had a several page letter in front of him and he was, he was reading from it. Let's talk about what this was doing to you on a spiritual level at this point. It was just a really chaotic time. I was moving, not just you know, down the street, I, I'm planning for an international move, selling all of my belongings, selling my car, selling, you know, everything, packing what everything I own into two duffel bags total, and leaving a place I had lived for several years and great community. And, and this was happening while we had the moving van out. So it was just like a really chaotic time. And I just, I, I, I this entire process, I keep thinking, like, they've, I think, again, this comes back to what you said, which is just like a commitment to justice. Like, this can't happen. Like, you know, I talked to Janice Allred the night before my excommunication. And I said, you know what, Janice, I just, I don't, I don't think they're going to do it. Like, I just, I don't, I don't, they can't. Like, I I just, I'm the only one, but I I still think I'm not going to get excommunicated. And, And she said, you know what, that's exactly how I felt the night before they excommunicated me because it's so wrong. Like I just thought they, I believe in justice. Like I believe in human beings. They can't just do something that's so patently wrong and so unjust and so unfair and so abusive and so manipulative. Like I just believed in humanity more than that. So this whole, and that's been every step of the way. Like I just kept thinking, 
they're going to release the move restriction. They're going to see what they're doing is wrong. They're, they're not going to punish me. They're going to, you know, it, it, I just kept thinking at every step of the way, it's not going to happen. And you received the notice informing you of the church discipline. Mm-hmm. On June 8th. On June 8th. So they gave you a month. And at that point, you'd moved over to Provo. I was in Utah. Yep. Was that a surprise? Had you expected that? The thing that was most surprising about that is that it was from my bishop. I'm, I'm like, where are you coming from? Like, what? At least the stake president had asked for two meetings with me, whereas the bishop hadn't and, and hadn't called me and hadn't texted me. And, and I, I'd seen him the last week we were in town and we were at someone else's house and, you know, he gave me a hug and it was like, have a great time in Kenya. Like, see you never basically. Had you spoken to him about, had you had an opportunity to speak to him about your informal probation? Had you called him and said, hey, did you know that this was happening? He knew it was happening because he was on all of the emails. Because again, this this was after I had left. So it was all via email. So the, you know, the stake president sent me a letter outlining the conditions of my informal probation via email because I was gone and he couldn't meet with me. Like typically you would meet with the person and, you know, work through the repentance process with them, but I was gone. So the bishop was on all of those emails. So so let's just talk procedure for a second. The bishop wasn't involved in your May meeting. He didn't convene your December meeting and he didn't put you on informal probation. No. And he didn't do the remove restriction either which is typically what a bishop would do. I don't actually, because I'm a woman, <laughs> I've never been in a bishopric and I don't really know the procedures, but from what people tell me, it's typically a bishop who would put a move restriction on a record, not a stake president. Yes, and it would be the bishop that informed you of an informal probation as well and would have those meetings. Right, right. But this was all from the stake president. Right, okay. Well, that's a little bit out of the order. Well, and the stake president also didn't know me. The bishop... I was in the nursery for several years and I was, you know, he gave me the calling in the Relief Society and we'd work together, like helping people in the ward. And, and we, we interacted, like I said, they, they tried to give us charitable donations because we were so like impoverished and I'm, us, I'm using air quotes under impoverished. And just so everyone knows that I do not accept that as reality. And I knew the Bishop in a, at least in the ward setting we had interacted and I, I, I thought because I had worked with them so much and because he had seen how dedicated I was that he knew me at least a little better. Whereas the stake president, I didn't, I mean, I don't think very many people really interact a great deal with their stake president unless they have a stake calling. I suppose we can now speculate why he suddenly became interested in this case, couldn't we? But we're not going to. Yeah, I mean, we'll never know. That's the thing is the process is so opaque that we'll never know. And at this point, my bishop is refusing to answer my questions, even, I mean, in his letter of excommunication, he told me that I could call him if I had questions, and then I requested to talk to him, and he refused to talk to me on the phone. That raises the other point about having this move restriction, and then not being able to be, not being in the community in which you've been disciplined within to have access to the ecclesiastical leaders. So who do they think your ecclesiastical leaders are now that you are supposed to set this at rights with? I don't know. (laughs) I, my bishop, because I requested to meet or like talk to him because I have questions, because I'm appealing, I'm appealing the decision. Uh, So as a woman, I have to appeal to the stake president 
who in my case was the initial accuser. So seems unlikely to be successful, but you never know. And then after that, I can appeal to the First Presidency. Are, are you entitled to know who was involved in your church discipline? No, my bishop explicitly said that he will not answer any questions about the process. Really, there's a big vacuum there of understanding. and Well, and ironically, the, the appeal is procedural. So I have to appeal procedurally, but I'm not allowed to know about the procedure. Okay, I don't understand that. Yeah, like... You can't say, like, they made the wrong decision. You have to say, like, they didn't follow the procedure in this way. And, I, sh- you know, these, these things from the handbook were done incorrectly. And, you know, this happened and it wasn't supposed to happen. Like, a procedural appeal in a criminal case is not saying they, the person didn't rob the store. It's just saying, like, the police interviewed them the wrong way. So, I, essentially, I have to base my appeal on a procedure and a process that I'm not allowed to ask questions about or know about. Okay. Okay. Well, that puts you in a really good position then, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. So um, I'm aware that you, you're not really that um, comfortable with talking about the minute or happy with it. Or <laughs> So um, I want to go back. Well, we need to talk about the moment of excommunication. And mm-hmm. you've made it very clear that you were surprised. Mm-hmm. After speaking to Janice, did you actually think to yourself, no, that won't be me? Yes. Yeah. Now, I want to go back to family. What's, what, what's your family thinking at this point? You're obviously having ongoing conversations with your parents mm-hmm. and your husband is there. What, what's mm-hmm. their reaction? So my parents are also being targeted for discipline. When I, when I moved to Provo, I requested that my records be moved to Provo because I was going to be living here for a number of months and I didn't know quite how long because we were working on our visas for Kenya and our records were not moved because we had the move restriction. And the week after I requested my records be moved to Provo, my parents got hauled into their bishop and their temple recommends put on hold and my mother was released from her calling as a Relief Society teacher out of the blue. Like she had also met with her bishop when she put up her profile over a year ago and they basically... She, she said, I'm not going to teach about this in Relief Society. shouldn't be a problem. You know, they agreed to disagree, and that was it. They never met again until I requested my records be moved into this ward. Your father, did he ha- does he have a profile? Yes. And so their temple recommends are indefinitely suspended because yes. they have profile? They uh, told them they have to take down the profile and disassociate themselves from the group. But the stake president told them, and I quote, you can still continue to love your daughter. Oh, that was nice. Generous. <laughs> it was so kind. Generous. <laughs> I won't, I won't, I'm sort of like, you know, the mind boggles really, doesn't it? Because the opposite of that, of course, is that you may not continue to love your daughter. Well, and the, um, the scary part is he might have felt like he had to say that. Like some Mormons would be like, okay, I don't love my daughter anymore. <laughs> I mean, maybe he was doing that to be nice. <laughs> How many profiles do you have now? Um, he, we started with 20 profiles, um, and we now have close to 500, I believe. Out of the 500... How many people do you know of who have been, had their temple recommends withdrawn or been put in other uh, yeah, informal probation or whatever it is? So the, because the process is so scattered and like totally arbitrary, it's hard to always quantify. But we've can't, counted, I think, 12 people over uh, the course of the whole thing, not just right now, but who have either been released from a calling, had a problem renewing their temple recommend, or 
one person, me, who's been formally disciplined. That's out of 500. So it's, it's a relatively small group, but those consequences are very real for those people. It is 12 out of 500. However, one needs to ask the question whether or not this is completely arbitrary and based upon that particular church leader rather than be- there being a policy. Yeah. I mean, I think the most revealing statistics will come after this is all settled because my fear is that local leaders will take this as an impetus for them to start disciplining other people. It, it's all it's all murky, like who ordered what and where did it come from and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like, I don't care, really. <laughs> I'm being disciplined. Other people are being disciplined. Church leaders at the highest levels need to take responsibility for what's happening one way or the other. It, you know, there's a very strict priesthood line of authority and my state president doesn't act on his own. He has what's called a line leader, someone who is above him in the priesthood line who is responsible for what happens in his jurisdiction. And that person reports directly to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. That person's name is Elder Hallstrom. I contacted him before any of this discipline went public, and I asked him to intervene on my behalf, and he said he couldn't. So he knew about it. Someone in Salt Lake knew about this. Well, they would have to know about it to put a move restriction on your records, really. There'd have to be some kind of justification for that. So at that level, at least at the Office of the First Presidency, they're putting a move restriction on because somebody has made a case that that's a reasonable thing to do in your case. We know that this isn't, these are not local decisions. Right. It's, it's like any institution, like it's in the army. I don't, actually don't even, I, why did I bring up the army? I know nothing about the army. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a low down rank officer shooting someone. It, it, yes, that person committed that act, but someone told them to do it. You know, someone had responsibility for the troops, even if they didn't explicitly instruct them to do it. There's, there's a lieutenant, there's a colonel, there's, there, there are people who supervise. And in the LDS church, that's not a loose association. That's a very strict line of authority. So it doesn't matter to me if Boyd K. Packer himself ordered this excommunication or not, those people in that leadership capacity are still responsible. All of the while this is taking place, you also, so you've gone from Kate Kelly, an eternal optimist, (laughs) acting out of this very strong sense of social justice and women's equality for women, very uh, almost starry-eyed, like this you know, visionary, but kind of starry-eyed. And then you've got to this place where your very membership is is threatened, your parents' temple recommends are taken. And you now are grappling with your excommunication. All the while, you've got this burgeoning hate brigade. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what that's like for an an optimist. (laughs) Well, also, I want to add that my husband, who is in the same ward, has he's a teacher in the elders quorum. That's his calling. He created the website. He bought the domain name. He has a profile on the site. He's spoken to the media, including but not limited to ABC World News. And he has received nothing, no discipline whatsoever. And they didn't do anything to him. They didn't even call him in. I mean, it's just not it just, again, is one more thing to highlight the sexism inherent in the entire disciplinary process. We did the same thing and he's a man and I'm a woman and I got punished. How does he make sense of it? What does he say about <sighs> it? 
you'd have to do a podcast with him. Um, All right. I think he's just sad. It's not fair. I mean, he either they discipline him or they undiscipline me. Like it's 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 not fair the way it's going. And he also apparently had a move restriction placed on his records because his records haven't been moved to our new ward. So with that, with no notice and no explanation, his records have been held as well. That might just be a process thing. I think when they move records, they move household records. So because you're in his household, it's possibly just one of those things. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that should also involve some notice. Oh, by the way, you can't participate either, even though you haven't been punished at all. So yeah, it's the entire process is very unfair it's been very hard on him obviously seeing yeah. all of this as well yeah let's talk haters for a minute just a minute <laughs> because what you have is this sort of meteoric um, reaction to ordained woman mm. and it hasn't all been all that pretty so how are you responding to all of this i know that some people think i'm a pollyanna <laughs> um but i have been really I'm just like a resilient person and I'm also a person who doesn't read comments (laughs) you know I'm not like reading comments on the Salt Lake Tribune articles and I'm also just not that I don't know it it I don't care about random haters who I don't know and like create random websites and whatever the thing that's most disappointing to me is people who I thought were my allies or people or silence from people who should know better so I honestly couldn't care less about random internet haters. (laughs) And I think everyone should not care less about random internet haters. But it's, it's when people in your ward, you know, my current ward where I'm living now, see you but don't say anything. They know who you are, obviously. Yes. I am in Provo, let's keep in mind. (laughs) Right, of course. And you feel like by some have given you a bit of a wide berth? Yeah, yeah. And do you feel a bit scrutinized? Yeah. It's also weird to be recognized, like very surreal experience. And I'm in the one place in the world where that would happen. (laughs) And I don't know. I just, I feel very, also very buoyed up from the support. Um, You know, just today when I, when we took that break, I went upstairs and there's two huge new bouquets of flowers from supporters who just sending, sending me lots of love and support. And it's just been constant, the support I, I feared, you know, I, this is on me, this is this reflects very badly on me, but I feared, you know, if I'm disciplined, it's over. You know, half the people are going to take down their profiles and all of the success we've had is going to be tampered. And I, I was, that's what I feared. And that hasn't happened. Very, I think less than five people have taken down their profiles. And none of those people were because they changed their minds. It was because they they were experiencing psychic trauma from everything essentially, and, you know, too much harassment. And, and, and we've had like a huge influx of profiles, you know, hundreds of profiles waiting to be published and, and people coming off the fence and supporting us. And we just had a recent, a very popular Mormon mommy blogger, who is in some ways very conservative, lives in Provo. Her name is C. Jane. And she just wrote a post on her blog coming out in support of ordained women, like support we never thought we would ever get before is coming out after my excommunication, which says a lot about those women. 
And so then let's now talk about the aftermath. This is kind of where we're at. Yep. So you've got, you've got, obviously you've got people who have had to think about this and have had to think about it more carefully than they would have otherwise because this is, you know, what sociologists would call a social implosion. <laughs> one would have to take one, you know, you're required to think about it and take a stand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem is that, yeah, some people have had to think more carefully about it, but other people are just, you know, TBM type people are like, oh, yep, that confirmed everything we thought before. She's an apostate. It's over. Right. And so you see them sort of gathering at the end, one end of the spectrum, and you see uh, sympathizers gathering at the other end of the spectrum. And I think before this moment, you know, people sort of tolerated each other a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But now it's like this big thing has blown up in between. Well, and even people who don't support ordained women for whatever reason, like half, you know, I had a thousand letters in my support, over a thousand submitted in my support for my disciplinary hearing. And over half of those letters, I would say, I didn't, you know, I don't know the exact statistics, but were from people who don't affiliate with ordained women or support ordained women for whatever reason, but think that the excommunication was wrong. So that those people are also having to deal with like, oh, I don't like their tactics or I, you know, I don't think women should be ordained, but she obviously shouldn't be disciplined for asking questions. And so I think the whole disciplinary process has brought a new element to the conversation. Because I think by the same rules and policies that you're, you're governed, we're all governed. And so it could happen to us and that, that you know, it could happen to anybody. And Not that. only that it could happen, but I feel like a, from the feedback I've gotten from people, it felt like it did happen to them. I mean, I, you know, I, we had an ordained women meeting in LA and one of the women there said after she heard about my excommunication, her and her husband cried and sobbed for three hours. That's, that's not something you're just hearing about. That's something you're experiencing. How do we respond then? There are going to be many listeners out there who are saying, I, I feel my, my uh, relationship with the church is now tenuous. So I want to come back to you and talk about what you now have faith in. <laughs> Again, you're going to think I'm a Pollyanna. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do it. You do um, it. I... I still have faith that on the disciplinary side of things, I still have faith that they could do the right thing because I have two levels of appeal and I'm going to pursue those. But even if that doesn't happen, I still think that women will be ordained. It seems pretty clear from from what's happening that ordained women isn't going to get the credit for that, <laughs> which is fine. You know, but this isn't about credit for anything this is just about women and girls and my niece you know and 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 my mom and and so many other women but I I just I feel really I feel fine about things I I'm disappointed in the way that the disciplinary procedure went but I feel confident that I did the right thing I feel like I acted with integrity I feel strangely calm and I mean not strange to me but to other people, it might seem odd. Um, this is one part of my life, but my life will keep on. You know, I'm young, and I'm like a very happy person, and I'm still happy. I don't think that I, I... I think that what they think they did to me was kick me out of heaven, but I don't think that's true. I don't believe in a God who is vindictive and, and would punish someone for speaking their authentic truth. I just don't think that happens. I don't think 
that's how God works, especially since God isn't just Heavenly Father, it's Heavenly Mother. And, and that's not something that I've seen parents do. So I don't think that's real. I don't, the weight of, of the consequence that they've imposed on me, I think should weigh heavier on them than it does on me because I don't, I reject that they have the authority to kick me out of heaven. Do you feel perhaps that this is the end of openness? No, no, no way. I think this is the beginning and it's not because of them. It's because of us, you know, those, those experiences that I should, I mean, that's, that's consciousness raising, right? That, that is consciousness raising when you realize it's not just my experience. I'm not just isolated. I'm not just the only one who's ever felt this. You know, I, I had breakfast with a friend from law school today who's, who's also grew up Mormon. And she said, you know, when I was having problems with gender inequality in the church, when I was 17 years old, I wish that there had been something like this. I wish I could have known that I wasn't the only one, that I wasn't the only member of the church who had ever had these problems or feelings. I wasn't the only woman who had ever felt less than. She's like, I wish that this had existed then. And now it does. And it's not going to go away. And if you Google Mormon women, <laughs> or even Mormon, this is going to come up. And people are, this is a conversation that is not going away. And so I feel very proud of us for speaking up. I feel very proud of us for connecting the dots and, and realizing that our experience is not just an individual isolated event, but is a, a, an institutional problem with gender inequality in the church. So it's not over. Um, I see this conversation as like a, a, a the tiny tip of like a huge iceberg popping out of the water. And I think the, the church public affairs department wants to take a a blow dryer to that iceberg and like melt it away. So it just like melts down and is, you know, hidden by the water. But what they don't realize is it's an iceberg. It's not just that tip. It's, it, this is the beginning. This is the beginning, the very, very, very beginning of a conversation about gender inequality in the church. And that conversation doesn't end with ordination, which I think you've pointed out. There are much larger problems. And if Thomas S. Monson were to say women were to be ordained tomorrow, that doesn't solve those problems. You know, how many black members of the church hierarchy are there two <laughs> it's and they were in, they were ordained in 1978 so it you know we still have a long way to go with racism and sexism in the church and 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 this again is the very beginning of that conversation the big issue of course is that well the big conundrum for people is the one true church rhetoric which suggests that everything is as it should be and God, through this line of authority, will change it as he sees fit. And then the other side of that argument is kind of the argument that you made initially is that actually uh, religions and spirituality is a, spirit, is a participatory exercise. It's where we all as a community get together. It's more like a Zion model as opposed to an IBM model. And I think what people need help with is navigating those polarities now, what would you say to somebody? Like they say, I, for the first time, I'm wondering if my church is actually even true. And I don't know how to process this. Mm -hmm. Good luck with that. Feels <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, no, I mean, everyone is on their own journey. That's why I say that. You know, it, I can't tell you what to think or what to do. I can't tell you whether to leave or whether to stay. I can't. Like, I, I, I don't have any answers for you. <laughs> and that's, you just need to do what's best for you. 
I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Zion because I think of the city of Enoch and they got there together. Like the entire population of that city reached a point where they were taken up into heaven. It wasn't like they were struck down. You know, they, they got there together. And so that's how I see Zion. And I mean, the one true church is a church that is flexible. You know, it's, it's, it has shepherds that can be responsive to the needs of its flock. It has an open canon, which explicitly and implicitly means that things will change <laughs> and God will review, reveal great and important things, not small and insignificant and cosmetic things, but great and important things. That's in the Articles of Faith. You know, that's, that's what we very fundamentally believe. And I think what we're doing shows faith in that and that other people are so threatened by what we're doing shows their lack. Of- Would you argue therefore that the brethren are not responsible for the system, rather they are equally limited by the system, which nobody seems to be comfortable questioning? I don't know if this is just like a lawyer answer, but <laughs> I think they are equally unlimited by the system. Like they're, they don't have to react in the way that they're reacting. Like they could turn to us and say like, thank you so much for wanting to invest. We want to meet with you. We want to have a dialogue. Like this is important. We value our sisterhood, not just with people who find comfort in the status quo, but people who question it, you know, they, they, they can choose that. There's nothing that says that they can't. Um, and they can still choose that. So why don't they? I don't know. I mean, I would. You would, and that's why you're not a member anymore. Um, I would. That's why I'm not in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. But um, I, I see it as the only way forward. I mean, what do we become if we don't change? Yeah insignificant kind of has to happen and in many respects you're the vanguard of those millennials those young people who just see the world in inclusive terms and and this is as a postmodern epoch this is the way the world is going and how are the church going to cater for young people who just don't see exclusions but find ways of dealing with diversity and inclusion and social justice and all of those those hot button issues that make this generation who they are so it's a bit of a warning really isn't it yeah I mean a friend of mine left I mean I went to BYU and I have very few friends who are still active in the church particularly single women I have a friend who left the church. She was very committed. She got her endowments out, even though she didn't go on a mission. Like she was very, very, very committed to the church and went to Brigham Young, you know, went to Brigham Young undergrad and law school. And she finally said, I became irrelevant to the church. And so the church became irrelevant to me. And I think that's a shame. And that probably is the underlying rationale for what you do you want this church to be relevant for all women yeah (laughs) I mean all people I think it uh, that's what a community is (laughs) it's inclusive um, and loving and can tolerate dissent it can tolerate uh, difference and 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 it can have open discussions you know like a I think of a family a very very unhealthy family is a family that can't talk about real issues and can't and punishes people for for trying to have that dialogue 
a very healthy family can work through those issues and talk about them and treat, you know, treat each other as, as equals. And that's, that's where we need to get to. Those of us who wish to hang on, we continue with the conversation mm-hmm. and we don't allow this to frighten us. Yeah. Is that what you would say? I mean, I think people who choose to stay have a responsibility to speak out. I, if you stay, you better be speaking out. If you stay, you better be raising your hand. If you stay, you better be telling the truth. I think that people of conscience speak up um, and speak out. And, and so if you stay, it's incumbent upon you to do that. Is, is taking discipline from the church that frightening? It's disappointing, but is it frightening? Should people be afraid of that? No. <laughs> I think that's the one thing that you need to understand. Like, I think this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. You know, we're not facing execution. We're facing excommunication. We're not facing imprisonment. We're facing social ostracization. We're not facing brutal torture. We're facing a separation from a community. And so sometimes in human nature, it's just the fear inside us makes us feel like what we fear is literally going to cause us to die. But it's not. It's life goes on. And the next day you keep living your life. And if, especially if you know what you did is right and you, you acted with integrity and you were clear about what you were doing, you have done nothing wrong. You, you move on. And I went to Disneyland last week. <laughs> you know, there, there is still happiness after excommunication. There is still joy. There is still love. There is still everything that's wonderful and magical about the world. It's not the end. And with that, we'll leave it. Kate Kelly, thank you so much for joining us at A Thoughtful Faith. And all the best to you and Neil on your next round of adventures in Kenya. <laughs> Pollyanna rides again. Thank you for listening to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. Join us in discussing this podcast at athoughtfulfaith.org or on the same-named Facebook group. We thank Chellen Hunt for graciously donating the music for this podcast.